Hello, and welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Rosica. I'm Andres Lorente. And today, Jimmy, I believe we're uh, taking a look at two good films. Uh, we always like to have an old film and a new film and see if we can make some connections between the two. And this week we looked at In This World, a film by Michael Winterbottom, written by... We don't know how much he wrote, but written by Tony Grissoni from 2002, yep. as well as Flea, a Danish animated documentary, but wonderful narrative um, that came out just in 2021. So, yeah, in cinemas at the moment. Our, when we when we first talked about um, what films we were going to do this week, uh, and uh, we came up with the idea of doing Flea and In This World, and uh, shortly afterwards, then it kind of uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and for about 15 seconds I was I was patting myself on the back thinking oh you know we're geniuses we've come up with such a brilliant idea look there's refugees in the news again um, and you know after 15 seconds I realized that I'm an idiot because uh, there have been refugees uh, you know, every week of the year every year for the last thousand years there are always refugees it's just sometimes they make it into the news cycle and sometimes they don't but yeah, if, if if ever there are not refugees on the news, it's because the news has got bored of them, not because they've gone away or find somewhere to live. So um, this year's uh, refugee picture, Flea, originates in Denmark. Um, did you enjoy watching that? I, I did. I loved it very much. And uh, you should pat yourself on the back because these two films were paired quite perfectly. Uh, they both focus on... Um, Afghanistan, Afghani, Af- Afghan, Af- what do we say, Afghan refugees, I guess. Yeah. Um, so the country of Afghanistan where the U.S. forces just pulled out in August. So, you know, we're seven months beyond another tumultuous uh, experience for the Afghan people. Yeah. Um, I think this film, it, it pairs well with what's going on right now in Russia because the Russians appear in this film quite a bit because of uh, the journey of the protagonist. He has to spend a considerable amount of time in Russia and getting... Through Russia, sent back to Russia, and then finally out for good. So um, I think it's definitely a very relevant uh, film for right now. Currently uh, nominated, I believe, for at least Oscars in Best Animation, Best Feature Film, Best Foreign Film. So it's it's got quite a... And Best Documentary. So it's 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 a little hard to get your a handle on it, but it is, I think, an entirely true story. Um, and uh, I guess I'll just get right into it, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so it's directed by uh, a Danish man named Jonas Rasmussen. We just looked at it uh, in IMDb and saw that it was produced for about $3,500,000. Currently, it hasn't made that money back, but I'm sure um, it will uh, through uh, award seasons and wherever it's going yeah. next. I, I saw it on Amazon Prime. You saw it in the theater, you said? Yeah, it's, on, it's got a limited cinematic release in the UK. Okay. So it must look good. I saw it on a large television. We we streamed it on Amazon Prime. Um, it is an animated film for the most part. I guess there are a few mo- mixes of some live action and animation. And there's this interesting little tip off because the song um, is it "Take Me Home" by Aha. It's "Take On Me." Take On Me. Yes. I'm sorry. So I remember so vividly from my childhood. Take On yes. Me comes in very early in this film, and it's very interesting because that, of course, is a mixture of animation and live action, and uh, that scene sort of becomes birthed out of these uh, period pieces of probably 1970s, 1980s uh, Afghanistan, and the main character is running around the city 
um, uh, listening to his Walkman, so he, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, listening to a Walkman. So he's like, presumably listening to that song on the Walkman, um, but it was just kind of a nice nod to the fact that it's doing sort of the same thing that uh, Aha did with uh, Take On Me back in the 80s or... Is that eighties or is that early nineties? Well, it's like mid eighties. I'm going to guess nineteen eighty four. That's what I put my money on. Okay. There, so there is an occasional mix, mix of historical footage um, following the life of Amin um, as the protagonist, who sort of sits down for this animated. He he becomes animated in this um, interview with the filmmaker, um, and it's going to it'll feel fairly as we talk about the two films together. It's, they're going to feel very similar in some ways, but also hugely different in other ways. So. Um, bear with me. This one's just very much a documentary, but it feels it's ju- it's just a great story. So it comes across as a narrated narrated uh, or narrative film at some points. Um, he's talking with the filmmaker, and um, he lives in Afghanistan at a time when there's a lot of turmoil. Um, the Soviets are sort of withdrawing when he's a young. Uh, boy there and the the Mujahideen is being backed by the United States it's a time when the Taliban are sort of moving in to take control um, and Amin and his family flee their father is sort of disappeared because I guess he's in a government official of some sort um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's not explained at great yeah. length is it he's just like this sort of shadowy figure yeah. and even, even the animation for the scenes when he disappears are yeah. like it's a beautiful effect because they are shadowy and cloudy yeah. you're in the same way that the memories are it's a, yeah. it's a really nice effect sort of thing you can only really do in animation yeah so we do get a, a fair bit of his background growing up at least to the early years I don't think he's more than 10 but when he has to leave with his family um, but he is at a point where he's he's crushing on um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, of all people. So <laughs> he's sort of getting in touch with his sexuality um, at a pretty early age. And that does play, play a part a little bit in the story. We meet his we sort of meet his um, partner in Copenhagen when he's an adult. Uh, these interviews that are really based the film on um, take place, I think, when he's probably in his mid-30s or something. So he's, he has a partner and they're buying a house in present day. But in his life uh, story, uh, the family ends up in Moscow, um, where they're really treated badly. I mean, the the Russian police just do not look good in this film at all. They're <laughs> taking bribes, they're beating people up, they are raping and pillaging. And uh, I mean, I believe it all, um, but they, certainly it does not make Russia look like a very friendly place for yeah, refugees. Truly dismal, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, they get trafficked. Uh, the idea is that they've got a, an older brother who's going to bring or try to bring um, the mother. Um, and then uh, Amin has an older brother and then two older sisters. And the sisters actually get um, sort of trafficked to Sweden quite a bit um, earlier. So they're sort of raising money bit by bit. The brother's just working a. A cleaning job, it looks like, in Sweden. So he's saving up money and then trying to get them to to Sweden to live with him and get them out of Moscow. Um, and one thing that's really similar between these two films is a lot of the nighttime stuff and the crossing of borders. Um, they sort of switch from, in this film, from an animated, um, a clear sort of animated images uh, sequence to these dark sequences where it's mostly shadow and you can see the snow on the ground. In both uh, films, people have to travel through snow and cold at night. And both films really handle this um, similarly but really effectively. Sisters eventually get onto a container ship. We'll hear more about container ships throughout. And um, they make it to Sweden, even though some people that are in that uh, container with them either die or are definitely in very bad condition when they finally get there. Um, And 
in Moscow, the um, other brother and Amin and their mother, they're kind of just pent up in their their in their apartment. They really can't get out. Um, they're basically prisoners in Moscow in their own apartment. And if they do go out, they get treated very poorly by Russian police or Russians. So it's a pretty dismal life in Moscow. Um, but the sisters do go out, so that sort of gives them some hope. And um, basically, the next move is just try and get either the next person out of Moscow, and it happens to be Amin. So we start following his story, but much of his story is not telling his story. So that's a wonderful little <laughs> um, piece there, is that this other narrative has been uh, given to them. They're not to talk about any family. They're sort of just to sort of get out of the the country each one at a time without you know having any... Uh, connection to other family members, so they basically he's basically sort of going out there as an as a um, as an orphan, um, and, it, and it, this kind of becomes like a, a self fulfilling lie, doesn't it? Because you know he has to pretend to be an orphan in order to escape the country and avoid being sent back, but he has to keep the lie up, so he yeah. effectively turns himself into an orphan. That's right. Uh, so it's a, you know about the way that um, you know being a refugee is is so isolating that the only way you can live your life is by deliberately isolating yourself even more it's like a a, 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 a vicious circle yeah you know, it's, it's a great little bit of storytelling actually it's one it, of those yeah. less seen aspects of the refugee struggle yeah exactly and it's that's what it is it's really storytelling so it's not just film storytelling he's actually sort of storytelling his life in the sense that he's got something that's not true that he has to convince others when he's crossing borders and convince himself um that that's, that story is true is the one that he's actually not um, there's a nice touch that Casper, um, which is Amin's partner in Denmark, is he wants to buy a house and settle down, and it's sort of played against this having no house and, and not even being being able to go outside in Moscow. So a nice little balancing act there, and it sort of gets some of the present day story. And Amin is actually an, an academic now; he studied at Princeton. He's going to do his doctorate, I think, at Princeton. So he's a little wary of settling down. Um, even though he loves Casper and he wants to get a house, but uh, he's a little nervous about it. So it kind of gets that, you get the trauma and the damage that he's experienced um, so that you see even settling down or just kind of being in one place again could be traumatic after being stuffed into an, a, an apartment in Moscow and not being able to get out. So a lot of this story is about his trauma and not being able to tell these things until um, he actually goes on film or his animated self goes on film uh, to tell them. And, and even then, like he remains kind of um, anonymous, doesn't he? So it's like it's yep. pseudonymous. He, you know, he doesn't give away his full name. He doesn't That's really right. reveal what he's studying or what he does. Yeah. Um, so even though he's had a feature film based on his life, he still can't really reveal the truth, you know, publicly. There's a lovely scene um, uh, right towards the end of the film. Armin and Casper they they buy a house mm -hmm. and uh, they make a joke about how are you going to carry him over the threshold and instead Casper oh, yeah. carries a cactus over the threshold yeah. and he kind of shrugs and he says well it's you know it, it, the cactus is so similar to you that I don't see there's much of a difference <laughs> and again it's you know it's a cute joke but it kind of emphasizes how you know being brought up in this climate of fear and this atmosphere of being unable to reveal yourself or be unable to share it pervades every aspect of your life so you know it's a it's a, a cute little moment that's actually really telling it's a yeah. you know, great bit of storytelling again it's nice yeah um and that i mean i love the animation of that because it actually looks like it is their real house of course and it's sort of they go to the actual um filmed footage of the house eventually after they've disappeared into the garden so that the anonymity is really preserved but you do realize okay that is what their their house that they end up buying together does look like it's actually the same location um 
There's another harrowing boat experience. This time it's with his old, older brother and his mother. So they try to make a crossing. Um, the Estonians take them in, sort of intercept the boat, and they sort of have to live in this prisoner camp, it almost seems like, um, in Estonia before they get sent back to Moscow again. Yeah. Um, they're given a cho- choice to return to Afghanistan, but they elect to stay in <laughs> Russia where things are really bad. And my next note is just that the Russians really suck in this film. It's, uh, <laughs> it's mostly the Russian police again, but he sort of he he witnesses what is about to become um, a rape of another girl who's been obtained by the police when he when Amin and his brother are sort of pulled off the street and beat up a little bit and thrown into a police van. Um, so it just really shows you how crappy life was there for uh, refugees at that time and at any time probably, but. Um, so that's when they really decide, okay, we're going to send one at a time, and when he, Amin's going to be the next one, and he gets smuggled again, but this time by truck. He gets into Denmark, and that's when he tells his fake story, and he, it, it's wonderful because the, the story has become so real to him, and it's so intense that he starts crying, so of course the, the Danish uh, immigration think, oh, this is definitely true, we've got to let this guy in and help him. Um, so it is a great, it's a great piece where the you know the, what's true actually uh, is unmentioned and what's fake actually becomes the truth it's a nice little twist um and then as the film winds down he's in denmark and he wants to confront his sexual uh, his sexuality and he wants a uh, some sort of medicine to you know make him ungay sort of change his ways somehow but uh to his surprise even though he's going to see a doctor to, to get some sort of medicine i think she really deflects it uh, and suggests that he sort of ex- accept himself first, and then he's really surprised when his Swedish family, which is you know the same people from Afghan, but um, they're in Sweden, and they not only support him, but they sort of knew he was um, um, gay from a very young age, um, without bringing it up in Afghanistan, where I think it would have brought more shame. Now it's really just the children of the family in Sweden. It's a new generation. It's a new place, and the older brother actually delivers him to a, a hoppin nightclub. And gives him money to spend, so he uh, finally he finds his freedom uh, of sexuality and being able to express himself. And um, I think from there, obviously, it doesn't um, go into the story that happens in the United States. But he gets to the U.S. at some point and studies there. Um, and then at the end, Casper and I mean have that beautiful house that uh, we were talking about and describing before. And but he still has very limited contact with his family. I think that's sort of an end note in the credits. It's that they're still living mm. this lie, and he, until recently, had been really living that lie. Until the filmmaker, who was a maybe a friend from high school, filmmaker invites him to do this project, and now the truth's finally coming out. And I mean, I, you you sense that he's just doing so much better. And I think the the film plays it that he's already gone back to Denmark permanently. He didn't have to stay in, in the United States too long to study. And everything's sort of finally coming together. But, um, you know, again, he might have a little sense of, uh, I don't know, dis- unease uh, going into a place where he's going to be staying for a long time because it would probably remind him of um, Moscow where he was stuck in an apartment. But in Denmark, they make it very clear that there's a garden right there. You can see the there's a river or a, a bay nearby. So you can see it's going to be a much better experience. And uh, that's more or less where the film ends. Uh, yeah, they they yeah, they, they kind of they maximise the use of this kind of theme of barriers, don't they? Because mm-hmm. it's all about either you know crossing the barriers to leave the country or you know getting past passport control to enter the country. But then also the way that sort of living in fear for so many years has also created barriers just between people. Yeah, um, and then and then you know because of confronting his sexuality, I mean, has this kind of barrier within himself as well, as if you know he's unable to 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 to. Um, 
cross the barrier between you know the, the self that he wants to project and the self that he feels that he is and the person he feels he should be it's all about the way that this kind of you know living in fear creates barriers you know in, in every perspective yeah. they really sort of tie that together very nicely through the film i agree with you and and i think both films you know they're both young boys probably roughly the same age they probably and are you, yeah yeah and you just really get a sense of how and they're they're sort of a generation apart though really because i think i mean early 80s and uh is it jamal and the other film is probably early 2000s so you know yeah but the trauma time. yeah but you can just see that trauma staying with them forever and it's so both films are difficult to watch in some ways but they just feel so <laughs> yeah. heavy you really feel the trauma that both these guys are, are experiencing I mean, I must say, yeah, the way you describe it, it doesn't sound like a fun night out. But actually, at the end of the film, I did feel kind of uplifted. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, it does it does take you through this emotional journey and it doesn't doesn't grind you beneath the heel of its boot for the whole duration. I think you do feel some redemption and some there is joy at the end in the same way. There's joy at the beginning. I mean, it starts with this aha song and then it finishes yeah. with um, Daft Punk, doesn't it? In the oh, in yeah. the gay club. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, so you kind of feel there are all these kind of you know, joyful moments. Yeah, it, it is possible to snatch happiness from from sadness. Yeah. My question to you is, do you feel that this film benefits from being an animated film or is it actually just you know a little bit of overlaid frippery and the story could have been told just the same you know in a different medium i think it could have been i think it was probably i think it was a good choice to go animated because it sort of preserves the anonymity that he needs there and for the exact reason that i think if it had been a live action thing it would have felt far more um, traumatic to the viewer i think that some of those moments of joy come out of you're not really looking at the ugliness of it. You're looking at <laughs> images or pictures or drawings, really, of the of, of the ugliness of it. And I loved the animation. I thought it was beautiful. I don't know if I would characterize it. It's like quasi-anime or something like that. It has a really nice look. It reminds me of the old Speed Racer uh, that I used to watch uh, as a kid. Um, but it, it's, it's lovely. And they use wonderful techniques in the sense that I really like the night scenes and the escape scenes are always... Sort of darker, murkier. They almost become black and white in the animation. Yeah, sketchy, so, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's sketchy, and the tone is just fantastic throughout. So I, I think it was probably a good choice to, to do it in animation. It's a good question, though. What was your opinion I mean, on that? It, it does have a real anime feel, actually. Right, not not least because it's it's um very low frame rate animation, isn't it? It's it's, it's never faster than I think than about twelve frames per second. Often yeah. it's less. It's like eight or six frames per mm-hmm. second. You know, it's kind of very jerky. It's, um. Uh, and in part, that's a budgetary constraint. Yeah. If you if you uh, if you slow the frame rate, then you don't need to draw, draw half the number of pictures. That's right. Yeah. Um, but also, it gives this this quite sort of um, I hesitate to call it painterly, but this it's a proper kind of sketchy feel. A little bit like the difference between like the earlier very fluid Disney films and those kind of nineteen seventies Disney films like um the Aristocrats, if you ever watched that yes. or Robin Hood, where they kind of it was very sketchy and you could see the scribbles on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um and uh somehow that that offers another layer of of um either of yeah fantasy or distance or it you know, it allows you to enjoy the drawingness of it to give yourself yeah. a little bit of emotional space. Um, there's a, <sighs> there's an interesting bit of self awareness about it though as well because you see uh, the microphone that he's talking to, you see some of the, the lighting or yeah. the camera. So I mean they're they're very obviously telling you that this is a documentary or you know these this is really is two guys sit, sitting down and talking. And I assume that the audio they're using is of Amin. That's probably not his name, but. 
it's his voice, I imagine. So it, it, it they don't have to use some sort of weird, you know, voice uh, alternator in order to <laughs> disguise him or put him in shadows. So you get to see him, and you're right. There's some points where he's just lying on a table, not moving, and for seconds and seconds, and you're thinking, well. <laughs> <laughs> That's because he probably didn't move in the interview, and maybe they're saving some money on animation by using that one shot yes. for twelve seconds. This instead is of, uh, probably something we'll talk about when we come on to um, movement as well. Uh, onto in in this world, yeah. Because um, you know that film is skirting this boundary between being a documentary and being a reenactment or being a drama. And uh, it it feels to me a little bit like there is a conceit in Flea that we are meant to feel that these are the original interview tapes and that someone has drawn an animation over the top to make mm-hmm. it feel like you're illustrating you know, a proper audio documentary. And I'm wondering whether maybe that's not the case. And actually, certainly looking at the credits, you know, quite a lot of the characters are played by actors. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's, it's keeping both its feet on either side of that boundary between documentary and you know, just a straight drama. And that's something that you know this animation will let you do. It like kind of it will muddy that that boundary. Um, it's interesting to see a an animated film aimed at adults. This is one of the things that I kind of reflected on having mm-hmm. seen this because um, if, if I I have children who are twelve and fourteen now, and so I've mm-hmm. spent the last dozen years watching a lot of animated films, and I think we currently we're living in a in an absolute golden age of animated cinema. Quite different to the cinema that um, the animated films that were available when I was a boy. Um, Certainly, yeah, when I was kind of young, um, animated films for adults didn't really exist at all. I think there was heavy metal in the 1980s, which I never saw, but it was this is a real rarity. Um, Whereas, you know, these days it's possible and it's feasible to create an animated film aimed specifically at an adult audience. I don't think anyone would feel comfortable taking children to this film. It's definitely aimed at an adult audience. Um, and it's nice to see the golden age of animation, you know, spread the reach of animation, you know, into drama and documentary and tackling some of these you know, really big issues. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, kind of do things here yeah, that, that you could only really do with animation. I think I think this film yeah would be poorer if it were just restaged with actors mm. or even if it was just like a radio interview. I think the animation brings in this extra aspect which makes yeah. it something more than it would have been without. Yeah. Um I thought it, I thought it was terrific actually. You know, moving, clever, very memorable. Um well worth it and quite tight for time as well, isn't it? It's only about an hour and a half. It's you know, it's a nice tight film that achieves all it wants to achieve and get and then gets out. Yeah. Oh, no, it's great. It was great. And uh, I like your point about being for adults because it seems like the the really monster hits that are animated now are written for both the children and the adults who are paying for the children and escorting them into the theater. Um, so the subtext in a lot of the films, uh, the animated films currently seem to be um, like, I don't know, they're, they work on a couple different levels anyway. So they, they definitely it's something for everyone. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, that's Flea. So this year's Danish Animation Award nominee. Uh, After the break, we'll come back and we'll talk about In This World from 2002.
So we are back, and uh, Jimmy's going to talk us a little bit through In This World 2002, which is a Michael Winterbottom film. Uh, but it was written by Tony Grissoni, um, who visited Jimmy and uh, our group at uh, London Film School. So Jimmy and I studied screenwriting together at London Film School in the 2000-aughts? Is that what you call them? 2000 Yeah, like, th- like, th- mid-2000s, mid wasn't yeah, it? Mid-2006. Yeah. 2006, 2007, and Tony Grissoni came in and did a pretty nice sit-down with us where I think there were 12 of us, and uh, we would occasionally get writers to come through, and Tony came through one time, and I'm wondering what you remember about that, because I don't remember a lot, but he did say one thing that really caught me off guard. Um, (laughs) Embarrassing. I'll tell you what I do remember about Tony Grissoni, which is I I don't think I can remember very much about what he said, Um, except I do remember him emphasizing that... um, there was very little difference between documentary and drama filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and he was saying basically the same things. The thing I do vividly remember about Tony DeCrosoni is how well-dressed he was. He looked great, I yeah. could remember his, like, his $700 overcoat that he was wearing. I can still picture that yes. overcoat now. Nice shirt, beautiful coat, such a lovely coat. I mean, a lovely coat yeah. meaning that he never took it off all the time that That's he was true. at the yes. film school. Yeah. And I think, I think we saw him not just once. I think he came at like two or three times. I feel like we saw him a few times. He was Always with that coat. Sure, never yeah. took the coat off yeah uh, beautifully dressed man yeah You're a clever guy great writer uh, i'm not sure what else i lo- what do, what do you remember what do you remember uh, um i remember that he told us that he just sort of starts writing a script and writes and writes and writes like he doesn't outline stuff he didn't do any like background stuff on characters doing little character by bi- character biographies and i i was skeptical about all that stuff but I, I always plan things out, and I really, you know, break it into act structure, which we'll talk about a little bit on this film. But um, he just said he starts writing and writes and writes, and I, that just seems so odd to me. Um, <laughs> he, I don't think he's going to go down as one of the, the absolute greatest screenwriters or anything of the sort, but um, I was surprised that a successful gr- screenwriter could really just sit down and, and write without structure or... Um, any kind of formula in his head or having the whole story sorted out. That was the thing that that struck me, but it worked for him. You know, I think if you can just write unhindered, maybe you get a lot of great writing out. Whereas the rest of us are are held back by our own little, you know, our borders and our own expectations of ourselves. I don't, maybe it's just sheer mass effect, is it? Was Tony Grissoni writing 700 pages and out of those, you know, <laughs> 80 would be good. So <laughs> just keep typing, just keep typing. Yeah. Um, yeah so that, that is the antithesis of what they taught us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> so I, I, that happened more often than, than I expected. <laughs> so here we are, we're paying good money, we're sitting there writing away and we're getting all this advice, <laughs> but you inevitably get the absolute opposite advice from some of the professionals who would come through. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, Tony Crescenti would turn up and tell tell us kids you're wasting your money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the door. Some of them were that close to saying as much, but um, I think this film would have been a couple years behind him because it's 2002. So I know we talked about it, and then I thought I saw this film. I did not remember it when I watched it um, okay. recently. So maybe I did not see it, or maybe I saw just parts of it. Um, but I think one thing is one question is like how much did he write for this film? And I think maybe as you as you explain it a little bit or um, tell us about it, we can hash that out too. Because I'm not sure how much. It, it, again, if it's a man who just sits down with no idea and starts writing, maybe he did write the whole thing. Um, but I'm curious to know like was there a screenplay or was he just sort of writing things as they went along? Because it seems like it's a journey film. Um, so it feels like maybe a lot of it was quasi improvised with Tony writing some things down or unless he went in beforehand with everything. So, 
I'll let you take I, it away. Yeah. Yeah. So what's one of those things where I suspect we will never know and everybody mm. concerned will have their own version of, yeah. of what really happened. So in this world, it's a... Um, it's a kind of docudrama, I think that's what you would call it. I think it has its roots in uh, sort of Italian neorealistic cinema. It's using non-professional actors um, who are kind of playing characters who are almost themselves. And it's talking about the story of um, two Afghan refugees who uh, live in a camp in Pakistan. Um, they've been displaced by the US bombing of Afghanistan um, which started, I think, in October 2001. Uh, the, the film was shot in 2001, released in 2002. And these two boys, Jamal and Anayat, um, they want a better life. They are um, effectively what the UK government refers to as economic migrants. So they're not necessarily running away from a war right now. No one is blowing up their homes at the start of the movie, but they are displaced um, and they're looking for a better life than the one they've got in this um, in this uh, camp in Pakistan, where Jamal works as a in a brick factory making one dollar a day, something like that. So um, these two lads, uh, Jamal is probably twelve, and and I might be twenty. I think mm-hmm. that, that's kind of about the ages. Um, uh, neither of them, uh, certainly Jamal, doesn't have any family. I think um, he has like sort of uncles or cousins, but um, no close family um but they managed to scrape some money money together and then they embark on this long twisting journey across the middle east and across europe um trying to find a better life so originally they go to iran um they're picked up um and uh, returned back to pakistan they try again um they bribe a policeman by giving him a walkman they make it to tehran and from there you know they they return back to Pakistan, I think, and then they return to Tehran and they hide in an orange truck um, surrounded by boxes of oranges. Then they cross from Tehran to Turkey in the middle of the night. Um, they get some work briefly in a, some kind of weird unregulated cutlery factory before hiding in a shipping container. Yeah, I wasn't sure what they Go. were making there. I thought it was uh, screws or bolts. You think it was... Look, I wonder whether it was like forks, forks or knives. knives. It yeah, looked yeah. like some incredibly dangerous machinery it where you metal, put your hand in the machine. And yeah, and it was noisy something, too. Something is made. Oh, it was terrifying. It was like one of the more terrifying scenes yeah. in the film. Um, you know, they make it to Italy, but uh, but most of, uh, most of the people who hide in the shipping container are killed. And it turns out that you know, Jamal is the only one who makes it. And... And Ayat is, is killed on the journey. He sells flags in Italy and steals bags, uh, gets enough money for a train ticket to Paris. And he makes it to Songat, which is um, uh, a, a refugee camp very famous in the British media for a yeah. while. It was really, um, uh, it, it was like the, the, the British right wing press's um, shorthand for hell on earth, mm. where uh, refugees were waiting to enter the UK. They uh, spitfully smuggle their way onto the underside of a truck, an articulated Oof. lorry, um, and uh, make it through the Channel Tunnel into London. And pretty much the last scene in the movie, um, Jamal phones his uncle back in Pakistan and explains that you know he's made it to, to London, so the uncle should should pay the traffickers their fee but Inayat um, died on the way the way he phrases it he says Inayat is not in this world yeah um, which is where the title of the film comes from and um, for all the the horror and the terror of the journey the last images of the movie 
uh, of um, refugees who are back in the in the uh, Peshawar Pakistan um, refugee camp, and you know they kind of seem to be having a nicer life than you know any of the moments that Jamal has enjoyed over the last sort of eighteen months. Um, basically, it's been it's it's a long ninety minute story about waiting, hiding being sent back, retracing your steps, being ripped off at every ang- uh, every opportunity, um, constantly fearing for your life, and then having a, a, a fairly uncertain reward at the end of it. Mm. Um, so it, it certainly gives you a, a visceral take yeah. on the challenges of being a refugee, traveling illegally, doing all the best you can to try and make yourself a better life. Um, it, partners up very well with flea because it's mm-hmm. you know it's set in the same part of the world and it's a very similar journey and you know we see um some of the same events happen to the extent that they almost start to feel a little bit like tropes that we see the shipping container yep. um you know we see the the uh, the um chaotic street scenes um we see you know people having their money taken and being ripped off and the kind of the shady um, people traffickers um and uh in this case um i believe many of the people involved are kind of acting as themselves so you know the policeman who's bribed by being given a walkman apparently yeah. was you know a real border policeman yeah. he was uh, just performing for the cameras doing the sorts of things that he normally does in his everyday life so it also straddles this this kind of border between documentary and drama and um you know reality and fantasy um you do have to ask yourself so vividly realistic does it appear you know, how much was tony grisoni writing yeah the, the dialogue feels extremely authentic jamal is this uh, very believable sort of early teenage 12 13 14 year old boy yeah he makes these kind of you know stupid jokes these kind of you know, really crazy silly jokes um which really reminded me of the kind of silly jokes that my son makes actually they just yeah. felt so authentic he really feels like a real person yeah and he um, uh you know, he speaks quite a bit of english in the in the in the film he as does. well almost like he was even learning it as they went along um and it's always hard to judge acting when it's done in a language that I just absolutely do not understand. But it didn't feel um, like acting. It felt very um, authentic in the sense that it was non-actors doing it. But it, it could, I, I see it coming off as kind of amateur just because um, I'm not sure how how well they delivered the lines. Or, and a lot of their, their movements and their, you know, their non-verbal acting didn't seem to be there. But... Um, y- the life experience was there, I guess, and I think that yeah. comes across. They, these are who they are. They're not delivering lines that they wouldn't normally deliver anyway, and they're not doing, you know, sitting around drinking tea and eating a lot, and they're not, you know, they're not doing things that they're they're not used to doing. So it felt natural in that way, I guess, but I'm sure not, you know, polished acting. It, it sh- shares a lot of recurring themes that we've seen in Flea. I've made a little note here, made mm-hmm. a little list on my sheet here about like the absent father, absent family, mm-hmm. absent kind of men, um, the loss of family, um, this constantly kind of being ripped off and kept in the dark. Um, and also even even the idea of you know, the way that music is used, that um, you know, music is really important in Flea mm. um, and just the use of this Walkman um and uh amen's ability to separate himself off from the world 
with music. Yeah. And then you know, the Walkman is Jamal's prized possession as well. We get this kind of diegetic music in, in this world. It feels like the music uh, in the film is the music that we would be hearing on the radio in the truck uh, or in the cafe when they're waiting to be picked up. It feels like yeah. the music is absolutely part of the scene. It's not yeah. something laid over the top. And some um, of it, some and, some of it might have been just not not sound and natural music. What they well, hear, absolutely, the yeah. Scenes, if it's not, it's absolutely what it feels like. Yeah, uh, the way that um, Jamal has to sacrifice his Walkman yeah. quite early on in the film in order for him to make it past this checkpoint, it really feels like he's giving away. It's like his right arm or his soul. Um, uh, even Inayat, who travels with him, is kind of upset that he gave away the Walkman. Yeah, it's like um, very upset. Yeah, so yeah. it's yeah, exactly. It's a real. Um, yeah, it's heart wrenching to see this kind of the, you know the one physical thing that he prizes so much has to be given up. Um, talking okay. about the neo realist yeah. um, yeah. heritage of the film, are you an admirer of those films? Did you like those kind of those Rossellini films and De Sica and those kind of Italian sort of uh, this Italian social realist films with non professional actors? Was that something that ever appealed to you or not? Not a whole lot, honestly. No. <laughs> um, I, I, I just love really tight storytelling, and and uh, like I like scripts. I mean, I write them, so uh, anything that is like strays from that, um, I feel a little uncertain. And uh, this one I did too, for sure. It took me a while to get into this. I mean, I was watching a terrible version of it on YouTube. It wasn't formatted <laughs> properly. The sound was bad, but that might have been good because the sound probably wasn't good to begin with. Um, but so just, I mean, the way this film was shot, actually, it's because it was all made with like low light handheld yeah. camcorders. So I, I watched the same copy that you did, which is very hard to find now. Yeah. This film, it's not available on the streaming services. No. Um, there is a free copy on YouTube and yeah. it is a, a crummy quality copy. But I bet the original is not much not better. Much better yeah. It's interesting if the film were made now, even the cheapest Mobile phone, yeah. the cheapest cell phone now, yeah. will film 4K video and yeah. um, the picture quality will be immensely yeah. different. And that's just 20 um, years ago, you know. That's, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, it really I, sort of grounds this film in its in, in, in the era in which it was made. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted, though. No, that's saying, right. Well, it was made for £75,000. This film was inspirational to me because it's so guerrilla style. It just proves that you can go out and and make a film. Um, so I really love that. And Winterbottom has done some similar stuff. I think he's a, he's a director who's definitely done some higher budget things, but he's also made a pretty good name for himself just doing things not unlike this, where he's just doing something completely unorthodox. And so I, at first I was really uneasy watching it, but I eventually really got into it. I was I was impressed with um, just how it, it drew me in. Um, and it's funny because a lot of it is you're just in one truck and into the next, and then you're driving one direction, you're driving the other. A lot of the shots are just trucks crossing desert scenes or <laughs> in the mountains um so it's it sort of brought up this 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 uh, I don't know, this postulate from postulate from uh, hitchcock where you know you you have to get the boring bits out like film is like real life but well the boring bits edited out <laughs> the boring bits are in this film but they're actually kind of exciting because there's so much struggle and there's so much um hardship that these characters have to go through so that I mean, just two, two or three seconds of a truck just going on a road is actually a little bit of a respite from how you know difficult their journey is. So all that stuff is in there. And one thing, another thing that really struck me was the the role of B roll. I shouldn't say it that way. The the, mm. play, the importance of B roll in this film, like a lot of it is um, just stuff that they were shooting in order to I think cover the fact that they were not. 
like there were not scenes where they would rehearse they would move the camera and you know record one person's dialogue and then flip it over so there are all these little coverage shots that are just b-roll of if two guys are talking in a cafe they'll look at whoever's serving something at the counter for right, yep. just to cover it just to make make it seem like okay there there are no gaps um when there were probably lots of gaps. I mean, I could imagine Tony Grissoni feeding someone one line through an interpreter, interpreter, and then they'd have to say <laughs> that line, and then they'd cut it quickly, and then Winterbottom's getting footage all over the place to just sort of piece together um, a narrative. So it, it's really a B-roll uh, um, masterpiece of sorts. I mean, he's just very clever in the way that he gets the B-roll in there, and it becomes part of the film in, in a way that you know establishing shots and whatnot really don't normally have that big a, that prominent a place in a film. I mean, it feels like it was shot with one camera, doesn't it? It yeah, doesn't feel so. like there were like two or three people and, mm-hmm. and you know, a guy with a boom mic. It doesn't feel like no. that. Maybe it was, but it really feels like it's just one guy with a camera. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I know, I know. I've certainly written a, a refugee script. You've written a refugee script, haven't you? Because I've read it, actually. You, you did a script about um, people trafficking. I remember reading that. Yeah. It's I've only got the short now, but and there's a container. It's there's a container ship scene in there. So it, you know, as much as those things, as you said, they sort of become the the canon or the tropes. Um, I think that stuff happens. And the interesting yeah, thing about real, it is that it? Absolutely. it happens a lot more than we want to acknowledge. And because it's so so clandestine to begin with, it happens a lot. We just don't see it. So and even if we saw it, we wouldn't want to see it. So I think. As much as it might be a trope, it's reality, and that that scene in the in in this world where um, Anayat and everyone's shouting each other's names out, and you're, they're just suffocating, and it's it's yeah. awful, and the, the noise is you know, again the sound is bad, and I think that works really well, and then it comes back. There's a scene when he's uh, he's on a train, I think he's on a train in England, in London, or I forget what it was, but he starts hearing the, those sounds again. He's, he no. hears everyone suffocating it again. It's just the effect is tremendous. Um, so, yeah, my, my script had that in there as well. It's Chinese immigrants in, the, in London. So it's, the short has been written, but it's an excerpt of a, a number of intersecting stories. So they're compelling stories because they, you know, they're, they, they feel undertold. Um, and yeah. also just that, yeah. that amount of struggle just makes it an automatic in terms of a protagonist facing um, adversity. There's, what's the little statistic that the narrator reads out at the beginning of In This World? That something like there are 14 million refugees. This is, at the time of shooting, there were 14 million yeah. refugees, it's thought, in the world. And about one million of them were getting trafficked a year. Yeah. Which is, you know, just an en- enormous, there's a yeah. huge human cost yeah. to what is you know, essentially an industry built up from the failing of international government. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I don't know what it looks like in the US, certainly in the UK, we're seeing a similar failing of government at the moment where... Um, many countries in Europe are offering to take in Ukrainian refugees and the British government are kind of folding their arms and saying, well, if you've got the right paperwork, maybe you'll need to go to the embassy and get some forms filled in now yeah. that the embassy has been blown up. It's, um, you know, it's, it's this is a, a lesson which was not learned in the 1980s, was not learned in 2002 and turns out not to have been learned in 2022 either. Yeah. Um, hand in hand with there never being a week where there were no refugees in the past it looks like we're going to have no weeks where there are no refugees for the foreseeable future yeah, as yeah. well it's it kind of makes you despair doesn't it it does and i think you know what we're seeing a lot more is also climate refugees are starting to yeah to that's going to get bigger and bigger states. isn't it yeah yeah so i think we're we're in for more of it um sadly 
And then I think uh, one effective thing here in, in, in this world was um, the BBC-style narration, which kind of begins the film, and it, it's heavier in the early parts to, to tell us that story. That's how we learn it, is from uh, like a, a news reporter narrating the story. It gets it going. And then the map movements actually are quite helpful. They sort of have these little pictures of uh, <laughs> them going across yeah. the world and showing us the countries. I th- that was actually... You know, quite helpful. First, I thought it was a little hokey, but no, it was was good. It was was necessary. It was slightly too Indiana Jones for my liking, but it was, (laughs) yes, but but it's, yes, but it's, it's fine. And it's kind of necessary. Um, And, you know, I I don't think I will be confident to draw a map of this journey. Um, You know, I feel like I know a bit of European and Asian geography. So, yeah, it's it's nice to have somebody just draw the lines on a map. Yeah. Um, So... I might take us back a little bit towards my first question about Grissoni and what he wrote, and also mention, um, like, both he and Michael Winterbottom, it's almost like they're doing nothing, but on the other hand, I think they do a whole lot with this film. I think they, they're working with almost nothing to a certain extent. You know, no sets, uh, very little gear, um, presumably a minimal story. Um, so it's it. there's this beautiful just sort of effortlessness about it. It seems like they're not really doing a whole lot to direct people or to write for them, but they do just enough where it, it is an effective film. Yeah. Um, and then another, another, I guess the other big thought that came to me was it, it ultimately gets forced a little bit into three, three act structure. And I thought like that, that's kind of a real stroke of genius because um, it wasn't that hard, but it, because I think I had a hard time watching the first 20 or 30 minutes because I felt very unstructured. Um, but eventually it sort of just falls into this sort of first act. They just have to get out of, um, uh, they get a, sort of get into Iran and they get turned around a couple of times and, so I think, you know, that's sort of the, and there's actually even, uh, there's even, boy, a, a refusal of the call early on. I think, you know, who's going to make this trip? I think Anayat was definitely going to make the trip, but someone else was going to go. And then Jamal really can't go, but then Jamal gets count, uh, called yeah. call to action. So it it ends up following a lot of the, the structures that eventually, even loosely, um, really help it. And then I think the middle act is certainly about um, getting through um uh, Iran eventually, and then into uh, Italy, and then you get this sort of quick. Lots, a lot of things happen when he's alone. So it even follows yeah. know, the end of Act Two, the the death of the con- in the container ship. You know, something has to die at the end of Act Two, and that definitely happened. And then uh, he has to go on his own um, in the end uh, through, yeah, as you said, Italy, France, and then into England. And uh, you know, he ends up as a, it's crazy because he does, you know, is he's, he's being a dishwasher all alone in London. That much better than, uh, than life in <laughs> Afghanistan. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, There's a sliver of hope there, but it's a, it's a it's a good resolution. You know, it's not a happy ending per se, but it's a happier than most of the journey. So it it just showed me the strength of three act structure, even if it's not like classically done or anything like that. There there definitely is a little bit of a structure to the film, and I think it saves it ultimately. And it shows you the power of that story shape that yeah. that um, it can it can meld. The form of the film without being in your face it's like you and it's only afterwards you realize that it's it feels organic that yeah. somehow it's settled into those shapes but yeah you, you can bet it wasn't organic and they had to do a little bit of a bit of hammering and chiseling to, yeah. to, to make it fit into that shape i guess you know that will probably be what grisoni did isn't it yeah it's very interesting one little bit of trivia i did read that oh, um for the, the scenes um that they filmed in songat yep um that uh, the local authorities wouldn't let them film there. Um, and in fact, that's all been filmed in the UK with a, a mock-up 
a really? mock-up French refugee camp that they had to build. Yeah. Ah. Um, which is funny because it seems utterly authentic, doesn't yeah. it? It didn't seem any less um, authentic than the rest of the film. So, so kudos to them. That's great. So, I mean, yeah, so it's clever, isn't it? I think once you're in that groove of believing what you see, yeah. and you know, I think the cinematography does quite a bit of the work we are with there a little bit it's it's you know it's like a post Blair Witch film isn't it it's yeah. that um once you see a little bit of shaky cam yeah you know a, a little bit of grainy video you know that's become so vividly the the, the shorthand for this yeah. is reality yeah. that then we're you know prepared to accept anything filmed that way as if it was reality yeah. um this it, it, it is sacrilege to mention this film in the same in the same discussion as in this world but do you if you remember um signs the mel gibson film from i don't know 20 years ago you didn't see it they do remember it's, it's, so it's it. a slightly dicey not particularly great alien invasion film but there's this little sequence about halfway through the film um, of a news report with some shaky handheld camcorder footage and that's by far the most convincing and frightening moment of the film simply because it enjoys this grammar of reality um and you know in in this case in in this world you know that cheap aesthetic and the low budget camcorder filming technique mm. you know paid off in spades it means yeah. that once you're settled into that groove you believe everything that happens on screen yeah and whether it was real or not mm-hmm. and certainly in spirit everything that happens in this film is real if it didn't happen exactly this way to exactly these people it's happened similarly yeah. to millions of others yep totally believable so the blair witch uh craft project was good for something <laughs> Good for camcorder sales, <laughs> yes, which which went through the roof. Um, so these these two films yeah, effectively are the same story, told in you know, in quite similar ways with you know, a few notable differences. Um, but you know this is an eternal story, yeah. and I suspect in twenty years' time we'll still be getting these refugee pictures. Yeah, um, podcasters but, will still be making money off this stuff. <laughs> makes you despair for humanity, doesn't it? Um, Great. Well, you know, this has been fun. I've yeah. enjoyed both of these films. I enjoy going back to see In This World. Um, and Flea is, uh, is uh, a film that I would recommend anybody listening to, to try and see on the big screen if you can. Yeah. You know, or stream it at home. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tight and um, eye-opening and uh, very well executed. Yeah. And uh, they're both good pictures, both well worth tracking down. Yeah. Uh, this has been fun, yeah. as always. This time. has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we will see you next time. That sounds great. Looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.